At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome into episode number 20 of the Five Reasons Podcast. Thank you for finding us. We are on iTunes if you're an Apple person, Stitcher if you have Android, and Google Play. Make sure when you get a chance to rate us as well. Um, that certainly helps us out a little bit. And go through our library to find past episodes because a lot of those episodes, even if we did them a couple of weeks ago, still apply. One of the things that Chris Whittingham and I have tried to do on these podcasts is bring in experts, people who know quite a bit about a topic that we would like to talk about. And there is nobody that we would rather have in here today with us than The Jack Show. Jason Jackson joining us. Thank you for doing this with us. Listen, first of all, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm glad to be aboard as we tape this in the nation's capital. I want to try to lock in on my basketball responsibilities, but I feel like I need to help our leaders lead. <laughs> but I'll, I'll stay <laughs> locked in and focused on, on the five parts presented to me today, uh, which will probably keep me out of trouble, by the way. I think they need it more than we do, Jack. So if, if at any time during this podcast you need to leave to, I don't know, hold Sam Nunberg's hand, uh, we, we would, <laughs> we'll be happy to lend you out for a few minutes and come back to the podcast later on. All right. One of the things uh, that we wanted to do again on the pods is tell stories. I mean, bring people behind the scenes a little bit. Jason has been with Heat since 2004. And so he's been here for all three of the Miami Heat's championships for all of their finals appearances, but also been behind the scenes with the players. And so what we want to do today a little bit is, is some story time. We want to get into five of the most important figures in Heat history and, and kind of take you behind the scenes a little bit about what each of them has meant to the franchise, our interactions with them. And so what we're going to do today is, is talk about these five guys in particular, Pat Riley, Eric Spolstra, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and also Chris Bosh. And we're going to start here, number one, with Pat Riley. And, and Pat's been here now since 1995, 17 playoff appearances for the Heat during that period of time, several different iterations of this team. When I sort of try to define Riley's error here, what I say, Jason, is that he made basketball matter in this town. That from the very beginning, when he arrived on the carnival ship, that this city changed, this area changed in terms of what its sporting priorities were going to be. Because the Heat before that were a franchise that had had some success, some interesting young players, but had not broken through. What do you think of when you think of what Riley's done with the organization? Well, there's a few things for me, and I, I have to start at the beginning, Ethan, because I was a Showtime Lakers fan as a kid. I grew up in, in Cleveland, and during those years, late 70s, early 80s, the team was atrocious. They were out at Ridgefield Coliseum. I lived on the east side of Cleveland, and so my dad would only run my brother and I to maybe a game a year, and that's back when you were lucky if like 35 games were on television, so... To connect to the Lakers, because they were on TV every weekend, uh, then obviously all spring for a decade. Plus, for whatever reason, my dad was a Celtics fan. Therefore, we just did the thing that you did. We went the opposite direction. And Pat was at the head of that organization 
and our love for basketball grew with Pat Riley as the head coach. And so full circle for me, end up in 2004, becoming the studio host and courtside reporter for the team. To this day, 14 years later, it's still surreal being in that place for me all the time. Even though I can refer to him as Pat, I nine times out of 10 still call him coach, as does the majority of the people in the organization, including head coach uh, Eric Spolstra. And I give you that tapestry because for me, I am never surprised. I am never thrown off. I get kind of caught up in the excitement of any deal that goes down from the acquisition of Shaq that opened up my job to everything that went down in the summer of 2010 to the grouping uh, that we see now, which brings Dwayne Wade back home. So it's an interesting space now because there are kind of like these different eras of Miami Heat that are a part of the the Riley years because this group, if things hold over the next uh, five weeks, is going to be a unique group that gets to run into the playoffs against teams that they've performed well against if they end up playing teams like uh, Boston and or Toronto, getting back to what makes this group unique is that Pat gave this group time and a chance. And Pat had a reputation as a coach and and maybe a younger executive of basically not having any time for young players. (laughs) And so while he's been able to add veterans, for the most part, when you look at the core of the group, this is a relatively young core that's getting an opportunity to be at the centerpiece of everything that's going to happen with this team this season, the next, and for them to have missed the playoffs, the excitement of how they got there, you know, pushing from 11 and 30 to 30 and 11 gave them hot air in the balloon that said to Pat and his staff, you know what, let's keep this core group together, add some pieces and see exactly how far they can go. Jax, you mentioned that Shaq story in terms of how it opened it up for you specifically. Uh, Tell that story. How did that work? This is the best story of my career. Because it's what happens when you lack humility, Chris, and you realize (laughs) that sometimes you just need to shut up and take the job somebody offers you. So Ed Villamy, who is the senior director of media services for the Miami Heat now, had some other responsibilities back then that included the broadcast. And he and I worked at Channel 7 together back in the mid-90s. I was between gigs in uh, from 2002 to about 2004. So he calls up. And I was watching, but not intently. My responsibilities at ESPN uh, for the, I think there was five of my seven years, the the latter five, uh, was exclusively covering the NBA. I was the host of NBA Today, NBA Tonight, and and NBA Matchup. So the connection was there, the identification, the credentials. I cover two of the three Lakers titles there with Kobe and Shaq era. So Ed gives me a call, says that, couldn't tell me why, but there looks like there's going to be an opportunity to come to the Miami Heat. And I just watched the run, you know, with Dwayne, and I was excited about the run that he had at Kentucky and didn't really follow the regular season. I was still living in Connecticut at the time, and but watched during the playoffs, and you know, the big shot that he had in game one against New Orleans, the chest-to-chest dunk in the second round on J.O. I mean, this is a little Wade kid, something else. But Ed calls, I go with the whole, ah, Ed, I'm trying to, you know, stay on national television, waiting for a call, blah, blah, blah. Well, fast forward, that probably, that conversation was probably right after the playoffs run ended for the Heat. So what's that got to be, Ethan, back then? That was probably, no, probably mid-May, right? Yeah, mid-May. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, I'll never forget it because it's my wife's birthday. It was July 20th that I think all of the things went down. I remember 
I might not have been paying attention, but whatever happened, I remember seeing the parade and the diesel truck, and I think there was a couple days after the actual trade had gone down. The can you dig it? Yeah, exactly. I'm bringing up a championship right here. And he, he listened, is that, is that, is that your shack? Is that your shack? Oh, no, that was my quick shack, please. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll a long shack if you want. But anyway, uh, needless to say, Chris, I called Ed back, begged for the opportunity Went through a, a, a real extensive interview process with both uh, Fox. I think it was Sunshine back then, but uh, right. I had to go to Orlando, interview with Miami. Uh, I had to interview with basketball and business and uh, got the job. And uh, to all the young people out there, someone who you used to work with works for a NBA team or any professional sports team, and they call you for a job, that's the better job. Don't be a <laughs> dummy like me. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, getting back to Riley here, Jax. I mean, you mentioned this iteration of the team is is different than a lot of the other ones we've seen, and and we've gone through so many of these, right? You know, going after the big fish and the, the stars in 2010, and now is sort of more of a collective that he's got. And one of the things that Chris and I talk about on the pod a lot is that you know, at some point, and we don't know when that's going to be, Pat's going to step aside. I mean, he's going to be 70. Yeah, it's 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 going to happen eventually. It's going to happen eventually, Jax. I mean, he's going to be 73. I, it's, he's going to be 73 in March. Eventually, he's going to step aside, and it looks like they have a collection of people in their front office now, whether it's Nick or Shane or Andy. Spo may be taking more control. We'll see what happens if Adam Simon stays or goes. But they have a lot of people there who, who may be part of it. But let's just look at it this way. If Riley doesn't end up getting another sort of big fish down here, and we know that it's – or whale, as he calls it. And we know it's gotten harder with the way that the system is set up now. It's just not as easy to get – not that it was ever easy, but it's certainly gotten more difficult to get the big, big player. And his career here just ends with competitive basketball. Is anything lost there? Or how, do you, how would you sort of look at the whole era? How would you, how would you sort of encapsulate it? See, the problem with me, Ethan, is that I have perspective. And so it's not required a, a, of, a, of a fan in any sport whatsoever. So I, w- I will always step back and look at it as what made basketball relevant, who made basketball relevant in Miami, who promised the championship parade down Biscayne Boulevard. Did the team have three of those with an opportunity to have two more? So at this point right now, it's more than enough. The thing with the the sports fan of this year, and I don't think it's unique to Miami sports fan, is that it's just now, 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 and we never look at this stuff in a wide angle. So I'm willing to look at it historically rather than did the sentence end correctly. And it's so hard to call that shot, man. Like, to say I'm going to end with one more run at the title, maybe even win the title, that so much stuff has to go in the right direction – the way titles are won are far more like the one in 2006 than the, than the ones in 13 and 12. And even that's I'm almost being turned out to be a liar because of what we're seeing with the repetitive opportunities that Cleveland and Golden State are having. But then I go back to how I started this conversation. For those of us who grew up you know, in the 80s or in the 60s, it was repetitive teams that found their way into that spot. I know that he is energized by the opportunity, the task of trying to put together a team that is not just competitive, but is trying to, as he likes to say, stay focused on the main thing, which is winning championships. So I think that it's cyclical for him, that he is energized by the chase 
and the chase is always there unless you win the title. So for me, I can't envision myself in that space at that age, which says to me that he's 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 more than me. He's he's superhuman. He's you know, he is Pat Riley. I mean, there there's there's a basketball regalness to him that allows him to be in a different space to to run and chase this and he's earned it, by the way, for as long as he's willing. In terms of the mystique of Riley, I feel like that's sort of the thing that Heat fans sort of enjoy the most. Do you have any, I don't know if like Godfather is the right way to put it, but any kind of story that indicates to you, I think there's two elements of this. One is that the, the stories are that he knows everybody in the organization by name and is just sort of this magnetic and engaging personality. And then the second is that kind of business element of pulling off the godfather-like moves in order to benefit the Heat. Do you have a, a particular instance that you remember that would most signify either of those two things? I think for me it's a very personal thing. For me to be a part of this organization and hear about Heat family and know that he makes me, my extended family, namely my mother's, my mom and my mother-in-law, to my wife and children all feel so connected to the organization. Those one-on-one moments uh, in the Heat family room or at the Heat family fest or at the Heat gala. Listen, there's a lot of options, man. And you can, when you're Pat Riley, you can kind of float around the room, right? Hit, you, hit him with the regal royal wave and everybody be fine. But he takes the time and stops and engages and finds out. He's watched my kids go from pre-elementary to, to college and high school age. I think he makes my the 70-year-old women in my life float around the room when he comes in the room. He's still, he still got it, baby. And so <laughs> it, it, that's the stuff for me that when I step back and look at it, I'm one of 350, 360 full-time employees with the Miami Heat. Of course, I have a profile that allows for people to know who I am when I'm walking around Publix, but I'm still one of those people, you know, and I'm not Spo. I'm not one of the players that have come through that he selected, but he makes us all feel like we are a part of something special. And I'm not sure that every executive of every franchise in our town or others uh, has that. They may want to. And they may put some effort into it. But it's, it's different uh, when he does it. And it has to do with the 50-plus years of, of being a part of this game on top of the iconic era that he played in in, in college. And it's amazing when you step back and think about it. I work for Calipari each summer for a big million-dollar fundraiser he has in, in Lexington. And so I get another version of Pat that is just so unreal. I'll tell you guys, I went this year. It, we we had the big dinner part of this three-day event in Rupp Arena. And I always question what I mean to these people, but I worked with Cal at ESPN when he was between gigs after being done with the Nets job. And he just likes the way that I go about my carnival barking. And I went out <laughs> and told these people that, hey, I'm Jason Jackson with the Miami Heat. We're Kentucky great. Pat Riley is our president. These people rose to their feet and started applauding because of their connection to, to Rump's Runs and, and the squad that Pat was a part of in the 60s, man. There's some folks in the room that don't have parents who were born in the 60s, let alone, <laughs> you know, being in the 60s. So you think about the, the amount of time that he has impacted orange leather greatness and you realize, mercy, 
I knew it when I went to his Hall of Fame enshrinement. I knew it when I took the gig. I, I, I've known it at every parade. I've no, I know it when I'm walking down the hallway and we stop and have small talk that uh, I am a, I'm a blessed uh, man to have uh, served in this role and be a part a little bit of his tapestry. Uh, one one more thing on Riley before we move on to Spolstra. And, and one of the things that struck me, what you're talking about, is one of the great paradoxes of Riley. Because I think there's a perception out there that he's very cutthroat. As Chris said, he's the godfather, the Don, and makes those decisions in an unsentimental way. And I've actually found, and I think this has increased over the years, for him to be extraordinarily sentimental. Um, and I think when you look at what happened with the breakup of the Big Three team— that came through very clearly during all of that because when I remember him at a family fest talking about how he wanted everybody to go to everyone's barbecues, right? Like all the this is I want this to be a generational team and that everyone's all the families are going to come back and you know in ten years and twenty years and all be together. And and I think if you look at decisions he's made over the course of his career, he's been sentimental more often than he hasn't been. The decision this is before you came, Jason, but the decision in the late nineties, those teams that I covered, to keep the Alonzo Mourning, Tim Hardaway, PJ Brown, Jamal Mashburn team together, maybe a year or two too long before he finally broke it up by trading for Eddie Jones. The decision to bring back and you were here for this, Jason, but the decision to bring back the championship team after the two thousand six season, when it was pretty clear if you were around that team in 2005 2006 that it had a very short shelf life that it was being held together by a string and it was a remarkable role that they got on in the postseason mostly led by Dwayne but that these were a lot of personalities on that team who maybe you were not going to get another run out of them he brought them back and then again with I, I think this sort of sentimental side that he's shown Recently, uh, the decision to bring Dwayne back, the decision to hang Shaq's jersey up in the rafters after Shaq said some pretty you know, nasty things about Riley, wrote some pretty nasty things about Riley. I think that's one of the things that gets lost about Pat is that, you know, some say he's mellowed over the years, but I think this has always been in him. But he's very different, I think, than the perception of him. I think people got caught up in the competitive Pat Riley, the intense preparer in Pat Riley. And didn't look around the room. I mean, when you start looking around the room and realizing, look who he has around him. Look at the people that have either played or coached with and for him and the jobs they all have. I mean, you start looking around the Miami Heat front office, man, there are a hell of a lot more former players than anything else. Or Chet Cameron that's been with him for decades and now in a second generation of cameras that are part of the organization to the whole vibe of the way that we approach assessment of the coaching staff. There's only you know, three organizations that can even look, stand up and raise their hand and say, yep, good times, bad times. This is our head coach, right? Mm-hmm. So I totally concur with you that you know you start looking at decisions that impact people's lives, not how long they practice or what the roster is going to look like, because those things, come on, that's part of the gig. You know, with a man who's coined the phrase, there's only two things in basketball, winning and misery. Uh, You probably spend a whole lot of time trying to run away from the misery. And so if you can draw a line of demarcation and really say, okay, here's basketball decision making Pat Riley. And then here's kind of basketball slash life Riley. Yeah, there's there's far more loyalty and connectivity there that, that I think he gets credit for. All right, let's get to the second part of our podcast, and you talk about loyalty, and and you mention it. There are only three organizations 
in the NBA that have sort of that have stuck by their head coaches for a long period of time. And and that's San Antonio. We know about the success that they've had. And this is a difficult year for them. But but obviously two decades of of being at the top or near the top of the profession. And Greg Popovich has been the guy for all of that. You look at Dallas with Rick Carlisle and and the longevity that he's had. And he, and he was actually named head coach in Dallas the same year in 2008 that Eric Spolstra became the head coach with the Miami Heat. And I think you know, Jack, like by days. I, I, I think I think so. So I think he's actually second longest tenured because it was a couple of days before Carlisle uh, was brought in there. But yeah. around the NBA, we see I mean, since then, some organizations have had a dozen head coaches since 2008. And as we talk about Riley being with different iterations of teams, he's given Eric Spolstra different types of teams to coach, whether it was the first two years where a team that was heavily reliant on a superstar in Dwayne Wade, who was in his prime to then moving forward and having to be a manager of egos and personalities during the big three era. Eric used to tell me that 75% of his job was just making sure that all the egos were massaged on that team, that it was, it was really about that and not so much about the X's and O's and the, and the, what people think of as the coaching part of it to the post LeBron era, trying to be relevant during that period of time, a veteran team in 2015, 16, and now the team that he's got now where he has maybe 12 guys that he could play on a given night and he's making decisions on which guys to go with who. I've been around Eric since uh, since he was an assistant, you know, since he was in the video room and I've seen him sort of grow into this role and in some ways become more comfortable in his own skin. I know you've seen that over the course of time. How different is Eric Spolstra in your view since he took the head coaching job in 2008, Jax? One thing that has not changed is he's still loves not dealing with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anytime that man right. gets off of the, uh, the interview podium, off he goes. I think the willingness to create and have his own stamp on things, I think it's hard to get away from what you know works. And, and when your mentor is, you know, this Mount Rushmore-esque icon, I mean, even guys the other day, Spill bounced in the room after shoot around and was kind of giddy about the fact that he had a little playset that Pat just drew up and and gave to him. And so there's still some of that, and rightfully so, where he's still pulling knowledge out of the out of the oak tree. You know what I mean? But what I think that he's done is he takes that foundation and has his own view. As you guys know, he went on this kind of coaching knowledge pilgrimage for a while where he would go out of genre but hang out with football coaches, other basketball coaches. I don't know if he's ever done the baseball thing, but just different ways of managing all of these personalities, all of these skill sets to the positionless idea, to getting guys out of their box. I think that might be the top of the list, Ethan, for me, is guys who we have seen in other places who have had their label stamped on them, and then they get to the Miami Heat, and he peels all that stuff off, and he frees a guy. That's the thing I keep telling guys like Ellington and Olenek and Johnson and so many others. How cool is it to have a coach that just tells you, Luke Babbitt as well, do this to exhaustion. Keep shooting, or you'll be sitting next to me. Don't you dare pump fake after missing a whole bunch of shots, let it keep going. Some of that is playing to the percentages. Some of that is letting someone be free 
to be the greatest version of themselves. I think that might be if we get players and sit them down over the last decade who have played for him, that that might come out their mouths first, is that Coach Bolster has given me a chance to be more. And that not only impacted me as a basketball player, but it impacted my pocket and my ability to earn and how I was seen and valued as a player, both in this organization and around the league. I think that's that's pretty unique. I do think the one thing that you can say, uh, he, he frankly coined a phrase that has become an entire era in the NBA in pace and space. I think we've seen, like you said, Jax, that yes, he comes from a Riley background, and that Riley background is very distinct, but there has been innovation over the course of time, and as we've kind of gone through these different eras, he has changed with them. And I think too often in coaching across sports, you see coaches that are just so unafraid to go with the times or go with the roster that they're given, and I would say that's probably Eric Spolster's greatest trait. Yeah, I, I would argue that, listen, he embraces body fat, <laughs> how much you should weigh, Defense is going to be the leading edge. Those things are not changing. But the stuff from there, I think, is he's willing to innovate. And he has embraced technology and analytics. And even though those things are at the forefront of information gathering, he still has a old school way about him that kind of connects these eras uh, in, in both directions. So it's really cool to watch someone grow in that space and it's funny. I think the next layer of it is, is is him connecting to and maybe admitting a little bit more of how much his fingers in the personnel bowl, because I think in the offseason, probably he's a little bit more connected. He still kind of pushes back on that idea during the season, uh, even when we're just talking about decisions of when to you know, have guys assigned to the Heat versus uh, assigned to the Sky Force as part of their two-way deals. While he may push back on the idea that, you know, he's the one making the call, he is the one letting the front office know what he needs in that space. And so it's going to be neat to see how much more and and how big his voice grows in that space as he maintains the head coaching rank. Do you see his future at all as perhaps a front office guy or or sort of a dual role uh, beyond just the coaching? As Ethan will tell you, and as I've experienced, once you become a parent, your whole world changes. So I'm wondering how he's going to look at his life after the birth of his child here in the spring. Interesting. Because you start, uh, listen, I'm, and I'm being very candid with you both, my greatest regret in this job is the stuff that I've missed with my sons. Mm. And uh, I have one who's a track athlete in college, one a, a basketball player in high school, and it rips my gut out. And it's not a fun feeling when you're missing those things. And, and I've learned, you know, over the years with technology to try to be connected, but uh, we all deal with that different. I had a buddy who was on the road with the Golf Channel. Uh, they had triplets, and he quit his job. So all of us, you know, just react differently to that, and that would allow him to probably do a little less traveling, not a whole much less, a whole bunch less. But I, I haven't had the conversation with him, but I, I'm wondering how that aspect of his life, that change, and, you know, not to kid him, he is going to be a dad a little bit later in life too for the first time. So I wonder how that's going to impact things, but it's, it's uh, something to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's interesting, and, and I think they're about six weeks out from that. I, I can speak to it too because I, I spent the first year of my daughter's life up in Cleveland, and and that wasn't uh, that wasn't a fun experience. Um, one more thing on Spolster that that I wanted to get to as far as as personnel is, as you mentioned, he's had a hand in a lot of these different things. I remember having a conversation with him about the D League, what is now the G League, and he was a big, big proponent 
of what they've done now, which was these two-way contracts and allowing the NBA team to have the rights to players to develop them. So, so he thinks in terms of organiz- the entire organization beyond the players that he may have on the floor that night. I mean, he was thinking about future plans for players that he liked in training camp who they might not be able to keep at that point. I think one of the things about him is he can be rigid about some things, and I've heard player complaints about some of that rigidity, you know, some communication issues. But as far as, as the numbers and the way that he decides to coach, he's actually pretty proven to be uh, pretty flexible, and I think that's been uh, one of the keys there. All right, let's get to the players now, as we talked about Riley and Spolstra, and let's start here. I, you know, I was going to start with LeBron, but I, I think in light of him coming back to the organization this year, let's start with Dwayne, and the thing that strikes me about Dwayne, more so than the basketball stuff, is I remember covering his first All-Star game out in Denver. I think that was 2000, that would have been 2005. And I remember him being in the locker room and I was there with another reporter. I think it was Chris Perkins. And, you know, we had all this time alone with Dwayne. Like he wasn't one of the guys that was mobbed at the All-Star game because he was new to it. And he was just sort of establishing his stardom in the NBA. And I remember coming out of that and thinking, I didn't really have anything to talk to him about. Like he didn't seem at that stage like there were that many other things other than basketball to really get into with him. The thing that amazes me about Dwayne more than the basketball stuff is just how he's developed as a person over the last 13 years and all the different things that he's gotten involved in, how he's found his voice on social issues, how he's found his voice out in the community. I mean, when you see a guy's career from beginning to end, I think you see some of that development with guys. But with Dwayne, it, it strikes me that that he's really, I don't know if matured is the right way. It's, it's just remarkable to me, you know, how he's progressed over the years in terms of finding his voice. I think the word you're looking for is evolution, Ethan. I, I, I... To watch anybody go through, let's put the basketball to the side for a second, to go through divorce, finding a a new love, to growing young men in your household, African-American men at that, taking those responsibilities and intertwining them perfectly with your work growth at the same time is not an easy path to traverse. I think that he has, in these 15 years, had some missteps, but the majority of the steps have been pretty awesome in the sense that none of that extra stuff is required, right? There was this feeling, I think, at a certain point that there was this direct community activism torch that was going to be passed right from Zoe to Dwayne, Alonzo Mourning to Dwayne Wade. And while that did happen, it was just in a different way. The approach of how Dwayne does things with uh, his foundation for, versus the way Alonzo did Obviously, the impact on the lives is pretty staggering from both stances, but just a different way of going about it to the idea that even Dwayne includes other you know, municipalities in that area. I have loved the certainty at which he goes about his stance. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, 
Wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Be it gun control, be it relationships between uh, the community and law enforcement, whatever the message is at the time, the way that he straightens up with a, a, a certain tone and a clarity is it's just rewarding, man, to recognize the platform, recognize what you mean to people and not shy away from it is neat. And now you embody it with this kind of rebirth. Guys, we are, what, eight, nine games as we tape this into Dwayne's return. And I know each night there's new people in the arena that haven't seen him yet, but, man, it's a full-blown ovation every time he enters the game. You know, he hasn't admitted it yet, but maybe one of the reasons why he loves coming off the bench is that it's a, it's a singular name, singular ovation just for him. I mean, it's I, I, I was just going to make that point because when you're when you're doing lineup introductions, there's flames going off and there's loud yeah, music blaring right. to the arena. But when you come off the bench and Michael Viamonte says, Dwayne Wade, like that's your moment, man. And he gets to live it every single damn night. It's remarkable, Chris. It's happening home and road, by the way. Interesting. I mean, oh, wow. road, it's on the road. And so, you know, as we go through this last stretch here and you're playing in Washington, right, that we go to these other arenas that in the West Coast trip don't have the connection of seeing him all the time, how much of that will be so new every time we walk into a space. I don't expect it on the road during the playoffs, but it is neat to see that really the basketball world is connected with who and what this is and what it all means. And the, the phrase that I keep saying, Ethan, going back to you, is that it just feels right, doesn't it? Like it just, and I think that's the thing that he must feel in the way that he projects himself from basketball into the world. And then now with the ease of being around his kids all the time and being in a space that he, where he is so beloved and can, you know, if there's ever any question about how he feels on a certain night or how the game is going on a certain night. He can always be energized by just looking up at the banner row over there and, and, and see his impact and his footprint on this franchise. I do kind of find curious within the building. You mentioned that evolution. What sort of a way that he kind of grew up before your eyes? Oh, there's so many. There really is. The one that I always watch, and I'm watching it with Jay Rich right now, Josh Richardson is when you make that move from being in awe of being in the league and all of your your teammates that have a pedigree or just veterans and you, you watch them play in high school and college to your own stance, realizing that all of it is resting on your shoulders. And when he went through that phase, somewhere between 2004, five, let's call it 2005 through 2009, in that window there, it didn't, come off, and Ethan, you were there with me, so correct me if I'm wrong, mm. it didn't come off as, hey, this is all mine. It was just, he was the best player, and, and therefore, like, that wasn't a deniable thing. And so, the ball was always in his hands. The franchise's images, you know, you look around, and 
you know, number three was everywhere. And then, you know, he transformed from finals MVP into a scoring champion. All-stars were piling up at, at that time. The shoe deals were, I think, at that time transitioning from Converse to Nike into Li Ning really quickly. <laughs> and uh, it was all going so well. And then, boom, the big three happens all, all in that space and time. The one thing that I've always appreciated, and I've had the pleasure of covering Michael Jordan, Shaq and Kobe, I mean, up close in their playoff runs, and then, you know, these big stars that have been around with the Miami Heat uh, over the last 14 years. And I've always enjoyed a very easy relationship with Dwayne. And, and I'm not saying I have difficulty with anybody, I really haven't, but Dwayne's ease at which he walked into grabbing the mantle and continuing with it has, has been pretty impressive. Even his return, it isn't kind of like, it, it's not wrestling leadership away from Goran or James or Udonis. It's just everyone recognizing, well, hell, that's three. <laughs> so if he's on the floor, you know, at, at the end of the first and beginning of the second or at the end of the game or whatever, the ball kind of finds him, doesn't it? So it's not crazy that the eyeballs and, the ears find him as well, regardless of his role. Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about this return is that there's really no downside for him at this stage, Jax. I mean, you know, it, whereas when you look back at it now, if he, if he had signed the two-year contract with the Heat and a decline had begun after signing to that, that kind of money, even though maybe it wasn't exactly what he wanted, I think that he would have felt it a little bit because it's always difficult, I think, for a fan base to see a player not be what he used to be, particularly if, if there might have been some resentment that maybe that contract was getting in the way of the Heat doing other things. But there's really no downside to the way that it ended up playing out. I mean, other than something that Chris has mentioned here and we talked in the podcast, that for a year and a half, people who were huge Dwayne Wade fans, you know, like, for example, the kid in Parkland, Joaquin, you know, had to see his favorite player play in a different jersey. You know, that's the one thing that that hurt people here. But but as far as him going elsewhere, his transition happened somewhere else, right? His transition to coming off the bench, to playing fewer minutes. You know, I, I mean, I you know remember being at his last game with the Heat the last time around when we were up in Toronto. And, and you know, although he wasn't happy about the fact that they lost that series in seven games, I think he felt, and I got the sense from him talking to him alone a little bit after that loss, was that they'd kind of gone as far as they could possibly go. And I think Dwayne, as the lead guy for a franchise, had gone as far as it could possibly go. Now he comes back... And it's like everything he does now is just sort of adding a little bit more to his legacy. There's really there's really nothing I think he can do now that's going to sour him in any way to the fans. And if he gives them a few more moments like that, you know, the 27 points and the, you know, and the last minute shot the other night, you know, that's all great. And there's there's really nothing negative that can come of it. So although it was painful to get here, it actually worked out in a strange way, the best for everyone, because it's not like Scottie Pippen going back to Chicago where he had nothing left, or Iverson. I, I remember seeing Iverson in his second iteration with Philadelphia, and that was sad to watch. I mean, Iverson couldn't move anymore, and, and what had been so great about him before had been his quickness and his ability to get the best. He couldn't do any of that anymore. Dwayne still can play at a capable level, and so I think for a lot of reasons, this worked out pretty well. And it's packaged in the right space, Ethan. And this place is so unique, and I'm not sure Heat Nation fully knows. I know they know it. You know, they buy the culture T-shirts and in Riley We Trust and all those things. 
it is such a unique place in every way that it allows for the exact right vibe and tone in this episode and so many others, but just this particular episode with Dwayne is so perfect because it just allows for him to be at his maximum every time he's on the hardwood. And if he was starting, could that be the case? Maybe, I don't know. The group that he plays with is so elevated by his presence. It's so fun. I can't wait till Ellington's back on the floor too. Just, it's so fun to watch guys move around the floor with Dwayne and realize, man, this dude can get me the rock. Anyway, like he doesn't, he might be coming down. He might be going up. He might be standing still and just flip it, you know, to the right with those enormous hands. It's, I'm so enjoying watching this phase because as he says, he has all the tricks in the bag still. What can he pull out to impact the game? Is it scoring? Maybe. Is it rebounding? Maybe. Is it assist? Maybe. He can still do all those things while elevating the guys in that second group with him, which, I mean, I think they're on the third version even uh, since he's been here. But it's still neat to see, because he's really locked in with that second group and the finishing group, how he's elevating everyone else's play. All right, let's get to the fourth part of our podcast and to a guy who hasn't been around since 2014, but his legacy obviously lingers here, and that's LeBron. And, you know, he, look, he changed. I mean, we talk about Pat Riley changing the franchise in 2005 and then, uh, and, oh, excuse me, 1995, and then Dwayne Wade's drafting in 2003, Shaq's arrival in 2004. But clearly, you know, in terms of elevating from just a, a really good franchise that had won a championship to being sort of an international sensation franchise, LeBron did that. And, you know, I sense Jax, and I want to get into some, you know, some stories from when he was here, but I sense now that a little bit of distance has has made hearts grow fonder here, and I experienced a little of that when I was up in Cleveland with LeBron and, and the Cavaliers in 2014-15, that, that he kind of looked back on his Miami days, at least the structure of them, although maybe he didn't love it all the time, and some of his teammates didn't love it all the time, that it served a purpose, and that maybe you know he looked back at it, and not only trying to put it into the Cavaliers organization, but also, you know, sort of, you know, with some wistfulness about how things were in Miami. And I've just sensed a thaw from him when he looks back at those days and sort of what they meant to him. How do you sort of evaluate the relationship in terms of thinking about LeBron with the Heat now to maybe what it was when he left in 2014? By listening to him sound like Spo half the time. <laughs> when, when I listen to his responses after games, after shoot-arounds, after practices, every time he drops a Spo is in my right Spo. I go, your boy LB is still dropping spo bombs, and I love it. And that means to me that he connected with that information. The stuff that you just said, like putting that stuff all in a suitcase and trying to take it to Cleveland, I think it's both endearing and flattering at the same time. It, it, it says that he understood the great things that he got from Riles and, and Spo and, and being a part of this organization led by the, the Arison family that, listen, that stuff is sustainable. That's the stuff that stays, man. When you create a requirement of, hey, listen, this is how we do this here. This may not be for you. The marquee is full. The minutes are taken. We ain't have any money, but you can come be a part of something special is, I think, something that's obviously presented in his space now. And I think that that's really cool. I'm looking forward to the day 
where he does sit down and, and intimately talk about those four years and the decision to come and the decision to leave and, and really get into the crux of that with great detail. That's probably after he retires. But I look forward to it because that part of it and how much he learned and the way that he was able to play because he didn't have to carry so much every single night. But then the nights that he did, mercy. Uh, it's it's such a cool period. I saw somebody tweet the other day that their favorite player in NBA history was Miami LeBron. <laughs> Let me tell you something, man. Cleveland LeBron young, Cleveland LeBron old, pretty damn good too. We can be biased about him and his space and his impact, but the thing that stands out to me about his time more than anything else was his inclusion. And I think we can look to his isolation as a young man, being an only child, having a dad that was not around, a mom that was working all the time. And so those days and nights of isolation probably led to the fact that that's why he does want all those guys around and, and has empowered his guys to be successful businessmen. And I think that's, that's the wondrous part of the story that's probably not told enough and clearly on some news networks not respected enough. And for me, it's the story that we should tell continually that regardless of your start, regardless of the hurdles that will inevitably be in your way, you don't have to be, you know, 6'8", 270, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know LeBron hates when you say his weight, uh, <laughs> to, to get to where you want to be, you have to be determined. You have to equip yourself. You have to be surround yourself with people who you trust and, and give them opportunities as well. And I go to a, a story that I think Ray Allen put best. He was the man on some teams. He's played with people that have been the man. There's been no greater teammate that he's had that has been on the top of the marquee than LeBron James. And that had a lot to do with the fact that when stuff showed up for LeBron, it showed up 15 times. Uh, when LeBron had functions, he invited everybody. That inspired everybody else to be that way. So that's why that, that group was probably far tighter than we even imagined. Probably had fewer clicks than most teams. And a lot of that was because of the way LeBron operates. One of the things I wanted to bring up with you as it related to LeBron was in kind of meme culture now and in kind of everything that happens on and off the basketball floor is content. I think one of the major things that really started was turning the sideline interview into or the, the, the post-game winner's interview into almost like a social media event. I feel like that started with LeBron James in the winner's circle. Am I wrong? I hope you're right. <laughs> that would make me a part of it, which uh, which is pretty 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 cool. Chris, it's hard to you know you got guys who would you know pop their face in, scream and yell, maybe throw some water, throw a towel, but to come in and make it an orchestration, to make it a show, to make it an anticipation, those guys were special. And while Chris and LeBron and Dwayne were at the forefront, as you guys recall, everybody would get in on the act. I remember one night where. Mario Chalmers pulled the microphone out and started started in doing the interview. Other cats uh, on the squad, even now to it, you know, kind of growing into this next phase of, of Heat players with Jay Rich and, and Bam and Winslow and, and uh, Whiteside all being a part of each other's interviews uh, in one way or another. It's really cool if you're in that space where guys pretty much will just create whatever you need visually on a nightly basis for your boomerang or your gif or whatever it's going to be. So, uh, yeah. So, I still, by the way, just to be on the record, 
still to this day, my favorite was the Dwayne Wade cartwheel. That mm-hmm. made right. That's right. Mm-hmm. in utter joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> done, I think the wheelbarrow, uh, the robot, the karate man. I mean, like, there's so many stuff, so many things had gone on. But when Dwayne went in with the cartwheel to the left and then the cartwheel back to the right, there are a few times, as you both know, that I don't have something to say. And uh, a few times where LeBron is moved into childlike wonder. And that that was thanks to Dwayne Wade's cartwheels. That's the thing that gets lost in in all this about those teams was as pressurized as that situation was. And and you can't have a more pressurized situation uh, that a team can encounter than that one did. Right. I mean, nine and eight in Dallas. And, you know, did LeBron just bump Spo and all the controversies, all the gates that they went through? I mean, whether it was cable gate or, you know, things that something Bosch would talk about practice chill gate. Right. I mean, you know, not when to practice for all the things that happened during that period of time. People forget how much fun that team had. And, you know, I go back to, and I guess this was the four year anniversary of it. So LeBron even tweeted about the Harlem shuffle that they, uh, that they did. And you mentioned inclusiveness, you know, all of those things were, were done as a team, right? I mean, the Harlem shuffle was done as a team. The Trayvon Martin photo was done as a team with the hoodies. And, and that was, I mean, that's really the start in my view of LeBron stepping out as a public political figure that that was really the first brazen act in that sense that, that he really stepped out because I think before that he was a little more careful, a little bit more worried about his image, a little more like Jordan that started something for him. And I remember a conversation I had with Ray Allen about, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, his affection for LeBron, but one of the things that struck him about this team as opposed to other teams, and, and he didn't mention Boston specifically with this, but I mean, you could tell he was getting at it, was he said that the thing that got him after about a month with the Heat was that every time that you were on the road, there were 15 texts that were being sent out about who's, where, are we, where are we all meeting for breakfast. Yeah. And, and he said that really struck him because that hadn't happened in the other places that he'd been in. And a lot of that was it was LeBron. And it wasn't just with the stars. I mean, I you know, I remember Tony Douglas coming to the team in the last year with LeBron and, you know, how much work LeBron put into making Tony Douglas feel comfortable and feel confident because they felt that at some point during that season, they were going to need him. He did the same thing with Beasley in that fourth year. So I, I think these are things that get lost a little bit about those big three teams is we, we think about it as the pressure and LeBron being a villain at the beginning and what happened in Dallas in the finals. But that team had a lot of fun and they had to like each other because if they didn't like each other, nobody else liked them outside of Miami. <laughs> so, right. So that they had to bond together and, and they had a lot of unique figures in that locker room you know, whether it was a Mike Miller who was seemed to be best friends with everybody on the team. And so it's sort of bind those ties together or whether it was sort of the smart guy contingent of Battier and James Jones and a couple of others that it was a really, really unique locker room. I don't know that we'll ever see another one like that. All right, let's get to the fifth part of this. And, and I wanted to, to do a little rapid fire with you, Jax, on just some other guys, because I don't want to leave anybody out. So, so I'm just going to give you a name and, and you kind of give me your sort of what, what comes to mind uh, when we talk about this person and their time with Miami. Let, let's start with, uh, let's start with Chris Bosch. Wonderful. That's the first word that comes to mind. Wonderful. The conversations guys that all three of us has had with that man were organic, thoughtful, in-depth conversations. 90% of the guys and coaches you talk to pretty much know what you're coming with. And Chris knew what you were coming with by measure of your query, but always had a thoughtful, unique 
perspective, even on game plan. Hey, how are you guys dealing with this team tonight? I mean, from a television standpoint, guys, we pretty much know what we want. We got we throw things into these slots. And so you, you'll hear me ask the same question of people all the time because we're putting together a string of responses. Chris's was always different. I love the fact that he was into things off the floor uh, that had nothing to do with basketball. The fact that he was into coding told me, man, this cat could have gone to Georgia Tech without the basketball. So I always enjoyed just a wonderful exchange, interpersonal ex- exchange with the man. And I think people don't give him enough credit for being the first guy to really adapt to the new role among the big three. He kind of invented the stretch five, didn't he? Because there weren't mm-hmm. a ton of players in the NBA. And I really do think that the Heat, obviously, it's you know it's birthed off the fact that you have LeBron James and you want to maximize him. But, man, they, they innovated in a real way that I think a lot of the NBA, I guess you could say Amari Sotomayor was kind of a stretch five and that Sean Marion was kind of a stretch four uh, in the seven seconds or less Phoenix uh, teams. But I just think that what the Heat did from a positional point of view and how they kind of changed the NBA and really set forth the the shifts in what we see today. I agree with you, Jax. I don't think they get nearly enough credit for it. No, and the fact that he was a really good jump shooter but then took it to the edges and became a really reliable three-point shooter at that size and that position is phenomenal. All right, let's go to a guy who's been here. Speaking of phenomenal, to spend 15 years with with one franchise and still be a force in a locker room, even when you're not playing, which is what Udonis Haslam still is. What comes to mind with UD? Uh, Cement, the rock, the foundation of it all. Um, Even to this day, uh, again, let's just be selfish and talk about production elements. Uh, The man has been alive for the entirety of Miami Heat history. Half of Miami Heat history he was on the roster without interruption. So needless to say, whenever we need a historical reference, Udonis uh, becomes that, that point. We have uh, flashback Fridays, and I think he gets on every Friday as we talk about players that either he was a fan of or played with. He just has a, a reach and a touch on every single thing. And he still looks like he can whip your ass. And so it's a real simple leadership. Not, not, not looks like he will whip your ass. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, there's a couple of guys I think that are fleet of foot that he'd have a tough time catching these days. But I present that not as a threat or as physicality, but as a true authority on what it is to be heat. And even how Udonis is very open about the two Miamis, quote unquote, the two South Floridas, the haves and the have nots and how that impacted his growth and the way that he is. But if anybody strings everyone together and brings everyone together under this Miami Heat umbrella, no one does it better than a man who was so impactful in all three championships and now is super impactful in how this new group of players are going to embody the four organizational letters on your chest, H-E-A-T. Let's go to the guy who you say is responsible for you being in Miami in the first place. What, what, are, the, what are the memories uh, that come to mind of Shaq's years with the Heat? <laughs> Money. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> having a paycheck again. That was a really nice aspect of it. Uh, so, so Shaq, who has admitted that you know he had his media outlet in L.A., I think uh, it was Jim Hill, right, with his Kobe diners and, and uh, Kobe had uh, Jim Gray. So I was – clearly being groomed in that space for him as it pertains to his television outlet. But it was so different. Miami's not L.A., you know, in the sense of enjoying needing or creating that kind of 
locker room turmoil. You know, that just wasn't going to be the case. That's just not the heat. Yeah, I say we didn't say heat culture back then, but it just wasn't that wasn't the Miami Heat way to have that type of tit for tat with teammates in the locker room. But there was just no one with a personality that big. So Shaq said, Well, then I'm just going to mess with you all the time. So <laughs> it would turn into <laughs> and, uh, these his horrible impression of me while I'm interviewing him. So he would try to over enunciate, go a little breathy. And try to be heady. But you guys have to remember, back in those days, I had still a little bit of kind of a, a stay soft row, um, high top fade. <laughs> and I wore glasses and had a very curious looking mustache. And so I'm sure that came off to him as a little professorial, maybe maybe graduate assistant-ish at the time. <laughs> and so How did you describe the mustache? Horrible. I had a terrible mustache. Uh, and, and and it was just kind of this mocking of me every single night that he enjoyed so greatly. And if you ever get a clip of it and go back and check it out, it's a terrible impression. But he was so taken by himself uh, that that speaks to kind of the, the kid aspect of him. You would you would put that on his tombstone. He was taken by himself. He was taken. <laughs> there it is. That would not, that would not be appropriate life homage for him but uh, the other side of it and I think that's a beautiful segue is the man cared about people and that's the thing I really loved watching him do the things that he would do in the community he took great joy in impacting young people specifically I remember his first uh, Shaka Claus out at the Enchanted Forest uh, in, in West Miami Day and the larger than life kind of like uh, it, it was like this mix of Santa Claus and Paul Bunyan and John Henry, like all mixed into one being. And uh, the, the joy that he would receive regularly from events like that was a part of it that I thought was really cool that, that he had. But let us not ever put any pause in our breath. We talk about how he impacted the shift of the sports identity in Miami and mm. I was a bit of a fool, guys, thinking that that 06 championship would change Miami into a, a basketball town because, what was it, a year, two years later, the Dolphins won 11 games, got to the playoffs, and all the attention shifted in that direction immediately. I think this next layer of Miami Heat excellence has done an impactful job of changing the market and the view and the demographics as these young kids who are now becoming young adults. It's amazing how many young 20-year-olds there are walking around uh, who their entire life Basically, are the three Miami Heat championships. Yep. They're coming up. Basically, 20, my life, too. Four years old. Uh, that's their excellence. We were coming up, and the Dolphins were our excellence. It's a, just a different vibe. It's, it's wonderful, and it's humbling. But it's neat to see how you can put a pin in the map in 2004, give Dwayne a lot of credit, give Pat a lot of credit, but the footprint of Shaquille O'Neal we'll always be able to look back to and say, man, that's when it started to turn. All right, last one here. Uh, I don't want to leave him out, and you mentioned him a little bit earlier in reference to his influence on Dwayne, and I do think it was significant. Alonzo, yeah. what do you think of when you think of Zoe? The beginning. I do. I look at Alonzo as the beginning of the, the player legitimacy for the Miami Heat players, and that, I don't want to take anything away from Cycli or, or uh, Glenn Rice or any of the other really good Miami Heat players, uh, Steve Smith, that came before 1995, but, I mean, what are we talking about? Man's in the Hall of Fame, man's a champion, a champion of people, an executive in the organization, 
a wonderful blueprint for any athlete that wants to go into a space and change the lives of people. That is not an overstatement. You start talking about what the mornings, both Alonzo and Tracy have done to impact the lives of young people who otherwise would not even begin to understand the resources necessary to achieve academically, socially, health, welfare, the balance of his basketball impact and his life impact through his philanthropy is so high bar and so even that it's hard. I, it, I wouldn't even put it on a young player to even begin to try to replicate that, but definitely use it as a, as a blueprint to, to, to try to do some things, to bind basketball with elevate, elevating people's lives. All right, great stuff from Jax. You can follow him at the Jax Show. Also, um, Jax, I want you to get a chance because I know you've been running a bunch of foundation events. Uh, what do you have coming up next, and how do people find it? Go to jaxfamfoundation.org. That's where we keep and 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 kind of uh, archive everything that we do. We're a young organization, Ethan, and so we're still trying to support organizations that are already doing good things. Hopefully, in the next half decade or so, we'll really start to impact people directly with our philosophy, which is kind of a one-on-one um, steal on the line from Shane Battier, touch the people approach to, to changing lives. We want to see problems and just solve them. See a kid that you know got into Brown but can't afford it, make sure that they can go. A house burns down during the holidays, make sure those folks have some place to go. We were able to take some action during Hurricane Irma that I think kind of reflects what we want to do in responding to problems immediately. And our Santa Jacks initiative does that a little bit in, in identifying young people who have never had the family experience but make sure they feel the holiday joy. Our next event uh, will be the Jack Celebrity Roast. We're still, I'd love to tell you all who we're going after, but it tends to not go well for me when I'm trying to tell people, yeah, we're going to talk poorly about you for an hour and then give you $10,000. <laughs> right. For <laughs> <laughs> your favorite foundation or charity. But we're working hard to make sure that the third edition is as cool as when we roasted Irie and Jason Taylor in, in these first couple of years. And it's really cool of you to give me the opportunity to talk about it. It's really the thing that I'm probably going to end up uh, loving the most about my impact when it's all said and done and uh, be able to pass along something to my sons that uh, that they can continue with that has nothing to do with holding a microphone. All right, good stuff. Jason Jackson, again, follow him at The Jacks Show. You can follow Chris Whittingham at Chris Whittingham. I'm at Ethan Jay Skolnick. We'll have another episode coming up later this week on the Dolphins and definitely check out the one we just did with Chris Kaufman about the Dolphins draft and free agency prospects. It is currently on iTunes, on Stitcher, and also on Google Play. Have a great day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.